Hello and welcome to the Property Roundup on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon, the show where we chat to industry experts to get a view on new trends emerging. This show is brought to you in partnership with Property District, changing the narrative of the industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Terry Gurry of Terry Gurry and Solicitors in Enfield. Terry, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. Um, Terry, many people will be familiar with um, seeing your content. You're definitely one of the, the most prolific content creators on social media. Um, and I would say that across businesses in Ireland and particularly across legal businesses, because it's not something we've generally seen from the legal profession. Um, so you might just uh, you might just tell people a little bit about the practice that you run and the type of work that you do. So the practice I run is sort of a a conventional uh, private firm business uh, concentrating mainly on the likes of property, employment law, litigation, personal injuries, wills. In fact, we do everything except criminal law and road traffic. We don't do either of those um, because it just doesn't fit and, you know, we have enough enough going on. My background then is um, I was self-employed from the age of 23 so i've been self-employed for a long time but i was in i was in retailing and property investment uh, construction and various other business down through the years so i'm actually a late con- convert to the legal industry legal profession and i suppose it's that external uh, view or perspective that i bring into the legal industry that's led to the social media uh, exploitation, as it were, and the use of that, and and perhaps a different uh, mindset, a different perspective uh, on generating clients, and obviously generating clients is the name of the game for any solicitor, you know. Very good, actually, Terry. I wasn't aware of that, and that's that's a really interesting approach. But actually, in a way, it makes sense because, um, you know, quarter of a century ago, I started out studying law, and back then. I remember the excitement back then was that there had just been changes made at that time that meant solicitors could now advertise their services because actually prior to that, it wasn't even allowed that solicitors, and I'm not sure if people are aware of that, that solicitors weren't in a position to advertise yeah there's, there's, there's still there's still some question marks over it and the whole question around the likes of personal injury advertising and so on but i mean if you consider the likes of or the content that i put out on social media i mean it's arguable that none of that is actually advertising it's simply content marketing and it's useful uh content of utility etc but i never at the end of a youtube video for example say uh you know dial and smile now call me here's the number etc i simply put the information out there and people say jesus this fellow knows what he's talking about i'll email him or i'll contact him or whatever and that's it and that's uh, how i generate leads how i generate clients and how i've been doing it but i only qualified as a solicitor in my early 40s so prior to that i was in retailing and then i was in property investment and then i was in construction and then the property crash came in 2008 and I lost everything. I lost everything I'd made up to that point and I had been quite successful to then but I had a wife, four kids and my back was to the wall. I was 42 or 43 years of age and I went back to college, studied law, became an apprentice solicitor, qualified very, very quickly and qualified in 2011. So I'm relatively new to the thing, you know. 
Yeah, and I, um, I'm sure that in some ways that can be a drawback. But quite frankly, I can only see it as a positive. And it's a huge, it was a huge positive because, to be honest with you, I didn't have the time to beat around the bush and rely on referrals go to Chamber of Commerce meetings, do the usual traditional thing that a solicitor might be uh, advised to do or might be inclined to do. I didn't have time for that. My back was to the wall. I'd lost everything. I needed clients and I needed them fast. And so the quickest way for me to communicate with people was by producing useful content, be it blog posts originally. uh, And I did, you know, prolific blogging. And then I have transitioned or uh, over to video. Uh, and video clearly is huge. So I've, you know, 23,000 subscribers on YouTube. I've over 25,000 fans on Facebook. I've 37,000 followers on TikTok, you know. it's I uh, know it's huge. The content you're putting out is prolific. And look, and you're absolutely right. It is absolutely adding value. By the way, just a, a distinction for people out there that actually marketing and advertising was traditionally and is supposed to add value to people. So that's actually what content marketing is, that you're not just saying, this is us, this is what we do, come talk to us. Content marketing, the whole premise behind that is that you're adding value all the time that the people exactly and you're and you're and you're providing you're providing utility but not only that but you're building a relationship and i have people contacting me from all over the country who believe uh, that they know me and and they know me or they think they know me from the videos and video is very very powerful in that regard it's the closest thing to me getting in front of somebody face to face video is the closest i can do you know and look, you've touched on it there. It's about trust and transparency. And I hope you'll, I hope you won't mind me saying this, but quite frankly, the legal profession is one that has, you know, really been a shining light for trust and transparency. And um, I think for that reason, uh, there has in the past, uh, the industry has benefited from having certain status or certainly it did, you know, up until the, the property crash. It benefited from having a certain status. It was respected that, there was never an expectation that trust would have to be demonstrated. It was yeah, it was yeah. a privilege. It was a privilege that went with the title. And I think that's something that has fundamentally changed. And I would imagine many of your peers are struggling with that. Whereas actually, exactly, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And yeah. the thing, if you lo- look at a lot of traditional solicitors' websites, you'll see where they went to college, the degrees they obtained, and uh, what they do and what they have done, rather than can I fix Pavel's problem. Do you know what I mean? Or can yeah. I fix the problem with the haymaker of a row going on between two neighbours over a right of way? So if I can, you know, so it's not a question of uh, where I've come from or what I can do. It's a question, do I understand your problem and can I help you fix it, you know? Yeah. And look, um, I would imagine coming from, you know, uh, I don't know a lot about retailing, but certainly from the property investment world and from the construction world. Um, if you can, if you can troubleshoot a, a contract in construction, you can probably negotiate anything, you know, yeah, because they absolutely. are, it's not that they're exceedingly complex. It's that they, the margins are so slow, mm. everything are so low. Sorry. Everything is important. Um, yeah. So it may, and so it means that people fight and that, that this transparency of risk, uh, which is what a modern construction contract today is really, mm. um, if you can negotiate that, you can probably negotiate anything. So yeah, I, I completely accept that this is a really 
comfortable place for you to be coming from. And I can see how that would translate into value for your clients. But look, let's talk about some of your clients. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen some of the content that you've done giving um giving advice to people who are thinking of buying and selling so let's let's break down and we certainly want to discuss things like um the vacant property refurbishment grant because you know that that's a really hot topic for rural ireland particularly at the moment but let's start with people who are thinking of selling their home um mm. and again you mentioned there that you're advising people not just locally but but um uh, on a wider basis is now a good time to be selling a home? Is this something you would be helping that you'd be encouraging people if they come to you? Or are you saying, listen, it's about Well, look, it's very much down to the individual circumstances of, of a person. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why a person might sell. I mean, they might sell and have a replacement uh, dwelling in mind. They might be trading down. They might be trading up because their family is growing. So it would very much depend on their own circumstances. That's a decision that they have to make. But in terms of selling and getting ready to sell and so on, there's certain basic things that they need to put in place that they really should put in place before they put the property on the market. And one thing is to basically contact the solicitor and ensure the solicitor knows what's going on because the solicitor will have to take up the title documents from the lender. The likelihood is there's a mortgage, there's a lender, and there is a bit of a delay there. Now, you know, there's no point coming to me and telling me we're after going sale agreed. And I'm saying, congratulations, where are the title deeds? Because you're looking at probably a three week or four week turnaround. And then there's frustration all around and there's the risk or danger of losing your purchaser so there's some basic things but ultimately the decision to sell will depend on your own circumstances uh, as I say you have to live somewhere uh, but you may be trading down you could be at the end of your career or your or your family could be reared or you could have a growing family and your job prospects may be good you may want to move maybe closer to Dublin to enhance your career and so on, or even to pursue further education or to let your children pursue further education in the likes of UCD or Trinity or Minute or whatever. So it will depend on your circumstances, you know. Okay, so I suppose the, the, the takeaway for people who are thinking of selling there is to um, at the same time that they're spring cleaning and decluttering their home is to get their Make sure that they're when, when they, when, in order. When they're speaking to their estate agent, they should also be speaking to their solicitor because they're going to need to get certain things in place. Taking up the title documents from the lender will take a little bit of time, especially if it's the likes of Pepper, for example, who can be slow. So that's one aspect of it. The second one would be getting your LPT, your local property tax record in, in order and so on. And then you might need a certificate of exemption or discharge for NPPR tax. Then we'd be asking you whether you've carried out any work on the property or not, because if you have, there may be planning permission or building regulations uh, issues there. In other words, you may need a certificate of compliance from an architect or an engineer and so on. So there's some basic stuff that we can run through with you as a sort of a checklist. Um, and then we're ready to go. When you get your buyer, when you go sale agreed, we can issue contracts and we can issue the relevant documentation rather than be holding on and waiting for ages to get certificates in place and so on, you know. Very good. And then let's talk about buyers, mm. not necessarily home buyers or first time buyers, like right across the board in terms of investment as well. Who are the buyers that you're talking to right now? Uh, most buyers would be relatively young people with relatively good jobs, strong jobs, 
but they are borrowing big money. Uh, there is obviously incentives uh, available for them to help them get on the property ladder. There's the help to buy scheme and there's the first time home buyer, buyers incentive scheme. And some people are availing of both of those. Uh, a lot of people are availing of the help to buy, certainly. Um, and that would be the type of profile. Then obviously you have people moving uh, up the ladder, as it were, the property ladder, uh, and maybe trading up uh, as their as their um, position improves and they've paid down some of their initial mortgage and so on. So, but a lot of um, a lot of people, new people to the country, people who have come in and uh, have good jobs, good professional jobs from outside of Ireland, uh, would be a fairly big factor in in the market, as I see it. Working in good firms, working in good companies, uh, high tech, uh, IT software, stuff like that. They're buying and they're buying in the likes of Ventfield and places like that. And they're thinking sort of long term, you know. Very good. Uh, Terry, what did you make of the of the news that it looks like the help to buy scheme is going to be made available for those um, self-building? Because obviously you're operating from Enfield and there's quite a large rural catchment area there. Would you deal with many self-builds? Well, how to buy now is already available for self-builds. Um, it's already available for self-builds. We would deal with a good few self-builds. Yeah, uh, a lot of people, especially in the likes of Enfield, will be getting a site from perhaps a parent or from an uncle or an aunt or whatever. So that that would be a feature as well, yeah. But and I think there was some suggestion or some talk about help to buy being extended to the second-hand market. I'm not sure whether that's the case or not. Um that's that's something that was floated only in the last, I'd say, week or 10 days. Um, it, as is common at this time of the year, you have the pre-budget submissions and yeah. you have lobbying calls. So that's certainly something that would put forward. And while I, I can see how that would be a benefit to home buyers, um, I suppose I would question whether the supply of new homes delivery is solid enough that, that we can really take away what was essentially a supply side initiative. Um, yeah. And not only that, but I mean, it would probably have inflationary uh, impact or pressure, you know, on the secondhand market as well. And uh, the market is probably cooling down a little bit or has cooled down a little bit. And there is talk about, uh, you know, a lack of or a halting of the growth that was there, you know, but it has been fairly steady over the last while. So, And tell me, are you seeing many um, investors? And by that, I mean, you know, maybe the the, I I, I don't particularly like the term amateur investors um, because I don't think it's accurately accurate to describe people who are building up a, a portfolio. But are you seeing many kind of one off investors? No, I'm seeing a lot of those investors actually selling um, for, for various reasons, but generally we'd be acting as vendor or the solicitors for the vendor rather than for the purchaser. Very, very few people are actually buying properties with a view to uh, letting them out, you know. And clearly there's been a huge exodus of uh, the small landlord from the market and who could blame him or her, you know. Yeah, and look, unfortunately, that's a trend we're seeing, whether it's in <clears throat> urban or rural or regional towns. And um, that just seems to be the trend that's there. And to be fair to Sherry Fitzgerald, they've been alerting us to this since uh, before 2016. And yeah. the problem is getting more pronounced. And again, this time of year, every year, uh, we're promised something meaningful in the budget. And I mean, what was it one year? A washing machine appliance or something ridiculous. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 I wonder, does the state understand how... The 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 um the importance of 
la- landlords right across the country. Um, yeah. and, and I just question that sometimes. Um, but we touched earlier on the vacant property refurbishment grant. That's that's another kind of important, important scheme. Um, you might just talk us through the, the mechanisms for that and see, is it something that you've seen? Is it something that's of value to your clients? Have they been it's able to ha- it's hard. It? It's hard. I haven't seen much of it, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, I think the scheme only came in in May 2023 or thereabouts. It deals with vacant properties and derelict properties. Vacant property, you will get a grant for 50 grand, provided you tick the boxes and uh, are eligible and so on. And 70,000 uh, is the grant for a derelict property. And a derelict property then is one that's structurally unsound and dangerous. The local authority is the relevant body that deals with it, and there is an application process through which you must go. Each local authority then has a person appointed, apparently, to come out and carry out inspections and so on, and ultimately then make a decision as to your application. Uh, To qualify for the vacant property grant, uh, the property must have been built before 2008. It must have been vacant for two years or more. You must own it. You cannot be a company. It must be an individual Uh, You must live in the property when it has been refurbished or make it available for renting. And then your tax affairs must be in order and you must have paid the LPT. So it is 50 grand for uh, a vacant property, 70 for a derelict property. It covers all sorts of work. The application form is quite extensive. Uh, you will need to prove that the property is vacant, that you own the property. You'll need a quotation for the work. You'll need planning permission if it's required. And uh, as I say, you make your application to the local authority. There is a sort of a payback or a clawback situation. Then if you only live in it for less than five years, for example, you must repay the full grant. If you live in it for more than five years, but less than 10, you repay 75% of the grant. And if you live in it for more than 10 years, there'll be no payback. And then the local authority will, as part of their application process, get you to sign a charge. So they'll actually have a charge on the property for whatever grant they give you uh, to cover them for for you bailing, essentially, before the five years or whatever, you know. Um, Thanks a million for going through that, Terry. I I suppose one of the reasons why I was asking if you found it benefited your clients is because um, this is a scheme that I really welcomed where it, at its introduction um, because I live in rural Ireland. I see the level of not just uh, vacancy, but also dereliction. And the dereliction um, in the rural areas are usually in beautiful rural areas where yeah. actually people would love, where people have maybe made and tried to make direct approaches. Um, but actually, when we got into it, and it's something we've discussed on the show here a couple of times over the past few months, when you look at the operation of the scheme, it's really unworkable. So, um, and and by that, I mean that a number of these properties, when you go to look at them, won't be mortgageable because mm. uh, because of the condition. So therefore, actually, um, if you have a small amount saved in in a, or a lump sum saved in cash, you'll have yeah. to use it to buy the property outright. You mightn't be able to get a mortgage. And then yeah. how do you finance the, the work? Because actually all of the work um, in its entirety has to be carried out before you can um, yeah. draw down any grant. Now, actually, that's something that I've taken up with some of the local authorities directly and mm. asked, OK, who like give me an example talk me through who is actually in a position to use this scheme and actually when we've pushed for it the reality is we were told that this scheme really is for people who own 
the property or mm. who have, uh, have inherited the property and essentially have a lump sum available to carry yeah. out the work or if the credit union is willing to do it. And look, I, I, I think the credit unions are great, but they can't be the state's backup plan. No, no. Because and- they don't think through a scheme. Yeah, that's a that's a fairly small subset of individuals like who would be eligible. Yeah. And so whilst the uh the uh program in theory looks good, in practice, you know, I've seen a lot of criticism online and I've seen comments on my own videos and so on on Facebook or YouTube or TikTok or whatever, where, you know, there was I think a primetime uh program done about it and apparently there's only been one successful application in the country mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. But I haven't seen much of it quite frankly in practice. So, you know, I know the scheme is there and I can talk about the scheme, but I haven't seen anybody coming to me about the scheme. Um now I do have some clients coming in actually from Germany and from the UK and I think they're going to apply. They would be cash buyers. They're coming in and buying places in the likes of Cavan and Leitrim and so on and more look to them. They're cash buyers and they would be in a position to, but as I say, I haven't seen any successful applications coming across my desk yet, you know. Um, yeah, look, it's an absolute source of frustration to us here and, you know, I think it's a frustration for home buyers who would love to live in these properties who find them extremely desirable, who would be willing to do a huge amount of work. They're willing to get stuck in, but they mm. physically can't front load the finance on two scores. You can't buy a property, particularly one that's not mortgageable, and you can't carry out all of the work. And And I actually had one vacant homes officer say, see if you can find a contractor who was willing to do the work. Yeah. Subject to you getting a grant. Now, from your construction background, what do you think my chances are of finding a contractor who would do that deal? Yeah, well, there's a contractor who's essentially going to finance your construction project. It's unlikely. It, it is unlikely in the extreme, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah. so look, these are these are just some of the challenges we're having. But you know, it's interesting, and it occurs to me just when you talk about comments on your social media feed. You know, we only talked about maybe the use of social media as a way for you to share your experience um mm. and and help people but actually one of the one of the unintended consequences one of the unintended or, or uh, benefits of social media i find is that it, it's a giant listening machine you're getting mm. very instant feedback um in a way that it's very difficult as a small business owner to get feedback from the market whereas actually social media will give you feedback so it was actually social media feedback that alerted us to maybe some of the mm. mechanics um, of the scheme that weren't working. But because you're communicating so regularly and you're getting instant feedback, so not just across this particular scheme, but from people thinking of buying and selling or and maybe yeah. frustrated. Yeah, by and the even, whole even, even in yeah. other areas of activity as well. And either, even other sort of hot button issues like Enoch Burke or whatever, you're going to have immediate feedback on TikTok, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And it, you know what I mean? Well, and you well, begin, let's, you let's begin to look at that. things with, with, with a different uh, perspective and you'll say, Jesus, I never thought of that now or whatever. Now, some of them, you know, are complete left field whack jobs, but there is genuine stuff there that, you know, you w- would make you think, etc. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a, a double edged sword, quite frankly. It's very, very, useful but god you you know you're doing a deal with the devil and you do have to live with it and just accept it for what it is you know yeah look and uh, that is a fair point but you know what um it it can be uh, it can be kind of it's a micro microcosm of people and you've got all sorts of people there but let's take the value out of that and the value is for people who are 
living and experiencing um I, I trying to do a property transaction in Ireland, you're getting first hand feedback, albeit at a very frustrating point in their life. So they're probably not filtering it. They're not moderating themselves the way they might if they presented in your office and were sitting across the yeah, desk. Probably. Yeah, and you'll, you'll, but, you'll also get the feedback about the likes of the help to buy and the first uh, the first time uh, buyers uh, scheme or incentive scheme and so on. So you get a lot of feedback about that. And, and people who are there uh, scrimping and saving and trying to get the deposit together, like they are at the sharp edge of things. And, and any nuances or any infirmities or imperfections in the thing, they, they have you know they're keyed into it. Well, let's let's talk about that for a moment. What kind of feedback have you seen? Like, what what have you learned? You know, it's great that you're educating, um, you know, a whole generation of people who are thinking of of buying and selling. But but what are you learning from them? Well, I mean, certainly the likes of the help to buy scheme and so on is uh, is very, very useful. Uh, and uh, most people, uh, especially, certainly buying new houses, etc., uh, are availing of it. The other scheme, the first time uh, buyer scheme, uh, it's a separate, a separate organization or whatever. Um, that's fairly bureaucratic. But having said that, it is. It is useful and, you know, a lot of people are going for that as well. It will depend on the individual circumstances, the taxation circumstances of uh, the borrowers and so on and so forth, you know. Um, look at the, with, with the purchasers and with my clients and so on, you're going to have a certain amount of cynicism as well, which you might have had over the last 10, 15, 20, 50 years even about, say, estate agents or about, you know, banks or about whatever. And, you know, a lot of that is, uh, hasn't really changed very much, you know. So you might have a completely new, uh, generation or generations of individuals, but they're all coming to, uh, you know, the thing with the same sort of conclusion about, you know, certain actors in the in in the whole chain, you know, including solicitors. Um, I think we're at an interesting time in history, you know, um, uh, particularly across the built environment, you know, certainly we've seen uh, coming from the crash, the recovery, the stage we're at now, you know, um, back in 2018, 2019, we were looking to try speed up the delivery of new homes by uh, giving, say, the community more information, you know, to stop mm. this wave of of what's referred to kind of um, blindly, what's referred to as nimbyism that's not in my backyard. But yeah. essentially, part of our job, is, a part of my role is, to engage with the community, public consultation and, and engaging with the community is generally listening to the community, trying to get a sense of how things mm. are feeling. And I remember back in, you know, maybe 2018, there was there was something that we we flagged a concern that there was real apathy. People just kind of didn't care about things mm. like planning issues in their local area. And we thought that was bad. We thought that mm. was a, a challenge to be overcome. Whereas now, fast forward kind of four or five years, you're into anger. And that's a different thing altogether because, yeah. um, you know, there's there's an anger across the general public that I think policymakers, locally, um, rep local representatives, I think everybody's struggling to really understand. And part of it, I think, comes from not listening properly. And I mm. wonder if more of these people are on social media and we're listening to this over the last number of years, they might have seen this level of anger build. Mm. They mm. might have been aware of it coming. Whereas the situation we find ourselves in now, people are so frustrated about housing that they're looking at potentially making a political change in 12, 15 mm. months mm. time. 
with no evidence that that will solve the problem. Um, no, no, and there's a certain element of um, cynicism as well about the politicians and the the role. You know, on the one hand, they're calling for an accelerated house building program and so on and so forth, and on the other hand, they're leading the charge against uh, the planning application in their area. You know what I mean? So listening listening to the residents and so on is is all very well but i mean to be coming out then on on the radio or wherever and and pontificating about the need for more housing and opposing everything at, at you know every opportunity there's there's a serious amount of cynicism there you know we, ne- we either need more houses or we don't and if we do we're going to have to take our fair share i think provided decent planning and so on is he- adhered to you know um, well, then tell us, what do you think, um, understanding as you do the the experiences of particularly the consumers, the home buyers, the home sellers, and I don't know if you act for um, um, home builders or members of the construction mm. industry who are trying to deliver homes, but to be fair, they have their challenges as well. So from the starting point of where we are now, what could be done? Because there's uh, the schemes and all the uh, housing has never been so well resourced in Ireland. Mm. It just seems to be really poorly executed. Starting from the from where we are now, what could the government do to to make it easier for people to buy homes? Because we know that's what they want. I think ultimately we'll have to look at the whole planning process and the question of uh, the role of onboard planola and the extent to which, um, you know, uh, development can be prevented or stymied completely or delayed to the point where it's actually not viable. Um, I think that's a serious problem. Uh, Everybody, you know, is perfectly entitled to have their view about about, uh, you know, planning and building and so on in their area, etc. But for the greater good, we must accept, I think, that a certain amount of development is uh, required. And, you know, uh, why not in my area? Why not in my back garden? You know, and I think from the perspective of uh, the country, uh, as compared with, say, the UK in terms of Ireland is full and so on, we're not nearly full uh, compared to, for example, the UK in terms of density of population and so on. So I, I think the planning system could be looked at and especially the delays and the ease with which people can simply go to the high court or wherever and uh, overturn decisions or challenge decisions, which ultimately delay the delivery of houses, you know. Um, well, then finally, before we finish up, Terry, you might just um, give us some insight into what's happening in your local area based on kind of the home buyers and home sellers who are coming into you at the moment. We know there have been a number of new home schemes completed only in the last year in Enfield. There's more due to be completed. It's an area that's seen uh, quite a lot of development as as home builders have moved kind of out of the commuter belt a little. Yeah, there's a good bit of development going on in Enfield at the moment and has done, uh, has happened over the last number of years. There's still a bit of land there. I think we have the sewerage facilities and so on. I think Mead County Council have put those in place. Uh, planning is granted and I think there is a good bit of uh, planning granted. So it is a question just of delivery now. And I do know that the development is ongoing and Enfield is growing fairly, uh, fairly quickly. And there's a good bit of development going on here. So uh, compared to other places that say we're probably uh, better fixed in terms of delivery of new houses, certainly than than most places, you know. Very good. And look, final question for today, Terry, just because my heart is broken trying to convince uh, business owners that there is merit to being on TikTok and they still think of TikTok as a place where teenagers go to dance. 
tell me, share share your experience. I'm not even talking about the wider social media spectrum. TikTok alone, how useful has that been to you and your business in the last year? It's been very useful and I get an awful lot of queries and uh, a lot of the queries will come by email and they will say, I'm following you on TikTok for ages or I'm a big fan on of your TikToks or whatever or I saw your TikTok about the row concerning a will or probate or whatever. And it's as simple as that. I mean, you put the stuff out there. As I say, I have 37,000 fans on TikTok or followers, whatever you call them. And the, the figures on TikTok alone, for example, for viewing of videos is remarkable remarkable quite frankly it's remarkable so people i i don't care if other uh, business owners especially solicitors don't do it don't whip out their phone keep it in their pocket i'm happy enough you know <laughs> i've no doubt and and finally terry have you ever had to dance no no not yet no if you see me dancing carl you know the game is up i'm finished <laughs> <laughs> you and me both terry you and me both absolutely don't worry. absolutely so- Thank you so much. That was Terry Gorry of Terry Gorry and Co. Solicitors um, based in Enfield. And that's all we've time for today. My thanks to producer Katie Tallon and to the Hear Me Roar production team. Um, and also huge thanks to our show sponsor, Property District, changing the narrative of the industry. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out all of the other global real estate and construction shows on iProperty Radio. And thank you indeed for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Property Roundup here on iProperty Radio.